If you don't know, if you're, if you're fairly new to church, uh, what is Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is the, tr- the day we traditionally celebrate uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and Jerusalem recognizing him, celebrating him as a coming king. Um, and then there's a whole lot that happens between that day and his crucifixion. And we call that the Passion Week, just the events that, that build up to it. So this, this week between now and next Sunday um, is a very important, some people call it Holy Week, it's Passion Week. Um, it's just the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and all the events. I would encourage you to take some time to, this week to really re- read and reflect that part of the, of the Gospels and, and the story. Uh, maybe even, even fast or spend some special time uh, with the Lord. Uh, we don't have any special services like a Monday, Thursday or a Good Friday kind of service. Um, we do have next Sunday. And we are, it will be structured differently. So my encouragement to be here at 10, um, I know some, you know, we have our own liturgy, right, as a, as a church, meaning we have a certain order of the way we do things. Well, next week we'll not start with worship, so we will end with worship. So just, just a little plug, um, for those of you who don't really connect with the music, um, you want to be here at 10. Anyway, we are... Uh, we are going through a series on Jesus. We're actually going to talk about Jesus all year long. Um, but right now we're talking about Jesus in the Gospels. And so we've gone through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Today we're going to be looking uh, at, the, at John. And uh, the book of John was written by the Apostle. And what's interesting to me is in the book he refers to himself as the, the Apostle whom Jesus loved. Um, that's interesting. I'm not... Hmm... Uh, Anyway, Jesus loves all of us, right? So maybe he's just acknowledging the fact that, hey, Jesus loves me. But <laughs> um, between, it was written uh, the early, the, the most recent, which means it was the last gospel to be written, uh, the newest in there. So it was written between the years 85 and 90 AD, uh, which means uh, John had the, the privilege or the, the, the ability to look back, and the other Gospels had already been written. They were already being circulated. Um, so his is different, right? Uh, it was written last. And the theme in his Gospel is super obvious. It's believe, okay? Uh, of the 244 times that the word believe is used in the New Testament, 98 of them are just in the Gospel of John. So... Uh, it's obviously an important theme uh, to John. And the question would be like, well, believe what? Right? Believe what? And he's, again, uh, John is super clear. He doesn't hide anything. He actually write, uh, puts in his gospel why he's writing this. And he puts that in John chapter 20, verse 31. It says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John just says, this is why I'm writing these things, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Close the book, let's go home, right? No. John has a lot uh, to say. Uh, And there's an interesting, you know, if you're a little, um, you know, original language, nerdy, Greek study nerdy, I'm going to I'm going to give you this little segment uh, for, you, for, for us. 
Uh, there's a nuance in the Greek language uh, that can tell um, uh, different things just by the spelling of, of the words. For instance, so we might use the word uh, believed, right, which means something that you once did, or you might use the end in ing believing, meaning it's continually, continuing to believe, right? The Greek does something different to uh, something similar. Uh, by the spelling, just the spelling of the word, you can tell what the author means. And so, there's a little interesting thing because the manuscripts differ. One manuscript writes the word um, as if beginning to believe, which would mean that John was writing his gospel as an evangelistic tool. He's hoping that people will begin to believe in Jesus Christ. But another manuscript, or other manuscripts, use the word uh, for continue to believe. Meaning, John wrote his gospel to believers to help them to continue in their faith and their belief. And so theologians like to argue over which one is most accurate. Which one was John really doing? Uh, Was he writing to evangelize unbelievers, or was he writing to encourage and strengthen already believers? And uh, my, my thoughts on this, I think that the Holy Spirit masterfully worked through John to accomplish both. Um, uh, you're like, wow, that sounds like you're sidestepping the answer. I think uh, too, too many times in, in uh, the Christian world, we think everything is either black or white. But God mostly operates in the middle, somewhere. There's a mystery to God that you can't necessarily pin him down. Um, and the reason I believe this is because John is rich, in that the first 12 uh, chapters of John chapters 1 through 12, focus on Jesus' incarnation and his public ministry. Incarnation is just the transcendence of God coming, becoming man. And then chapters 13 through 21 are very deep and rich in caring for his disciples. And we're going to look at some of that today. So both are in the Gospel of John. I don't think you can separate. Both become accomplished. And so, um, get, you know what? For all of us common folk, it, who cares? It doesn't matter. John's gospel does both. It's evangelistic, and it encourages the believer. So let's just receive it as such, right? So what exactly about Jesus does John focus on? Because John's gospel is so different than the other three, right? I mean, there's a similar pattern to the other three, talking about a little bit Jesus' upbringing, his early life. You know, there's a similar structure John is like the same story with a different producer, right? Like, we keep seeing Batman recycled over and over and over again, right? Just same story, different producer. Um, John feels a bit like that. Like, the first three had one producer, and and John is a completely different animal, so to speak. So, let's look at what John was focusing on about Jesus. And and it starts right with verse 1, chapter 1. So, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What? Like, I know, it's hard sometimes. I find it's the most confusing verse uh, until you break it down. Let's move on. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. 
And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the NIV translation. Summary, what is John talking about? John is saying that Jesus is God. All five of those verses, he's saying, Jesus, who walked on this earth, who we've all seen, who we've touched, who we've lived with, not only is the Son of God, or a prophet, or a Messiah, or those kinds of things, or a coming king, yes, yes, yes. He actually is God. He was there in the beginning when God created. In fact, he is part of the creation process. In him is life, and will continue to be life. And he goes, that's what all of these things say. John is making this claim that Jesus is God. Um, And then what he does next he goes on and he presents uh, seven miracles that Jesus did and seven claims that Jesus said about himself, which is important because I can make a claim about you, and it could be true or could be, could be false, but if you make the same claim about yourself, right? So uh, we could argue, and some people say, well, Jesus was, a, a good, was just a prophet, or Jesus was a good teacher, But what if Jesus claimed himself to be God? We have to reconcile with that, right? So let's look at these these miracles uh, and statements that Jesus made that John is using for us in order to believe that Jesus is God, okay? There's seven miracles of John. They're small, whether you can read that or not. Uh, I'm not going to turn to each one. But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus turns water into wine. He turns water into wine. In chapter 4, verse 46 through 54, he heals a sick, uh, a sick son. Now, this is an official son, and the difference with the healing of this son is he doesn't go to that son. The father comes to Jesus and says, would you come? My son is sick, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus says, go home, he's healed. And he's healed. So there's no laying on of hands. There's no spitting in the mud. There's no any of those kinds of things. He just speaks from a distance and he's healed. Third uh, miracle in John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, he heals a lame beggar, right? A cripple uh, by the pool who's been crippled for years and years and years and years and and, uh, can't get in the water. In John chapter 6, verse 5 through 13, he feeds 5,000. Um, but he doesn't like go and bake a bunch of bread, right? He's, he, he takes a little boy's lunch, five loaves and two fish. Now, the little boy offers it. Jesus doesn't steal. He, he offered the lunch, and Jesus divided it and multiplied it and fed 5,000 men. They only, I'm sorry, uh, women and children, they only counted the men back in those days. So, they really say there was probably more like, you know, twelve to 15,000 people there. So he fed at least 5,000 people with one, one little boy's lunch. John chapter 6, he walked on the water. John chapter 9, he heals a blind man on the Sabbath. And then John chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead after he'd been in the tomb how many days? Four days. 
If you've been in church for a while, these miracles, yeah, those are miracles of Jesus. But John is specifically sharing these seven as proof that Jesus is God. And when you look at each miracle and what it signifies, when Jesus turns water to wine, he actually changes the the chemical uh, uh, composition of one substance into another substance. Only God can do that. It's not like he added something and it became now like diluted wine. He actually changed the chemical composition from one thing to something else. A human can't do that. He heals a sick son from a distance. Now, in our modern day and age, uh, you know, people have been healed at the hands of doctors or medicine. Uh, But Jesus, however the distance was, I don't know, he just says, your son is healed. And the guy goes home and his son is healed. No human being can do that. Is just say, your so-and-so is healed. We also see the healing of a crippled. So one could argue, well, maybe the son wasn't on his deathbed. Maybe he gradually got better by the time the dad got home. Okay, someone who's been crippled next to a pool for decades. Jesus walks up and speaks, and they stand up and walk away. Now, obviously, uh, that th- you know, someone's been uh, crippled for that long, you don't just heal uh, in three seconds, right? So it's a miracle. He feeds 5,000. I mean, I have this water because I'm, you know, I like to take a little sip. So I'm, but if, if everybody in this room and everybody currently in Hyannis was thirsty and this is all I had, guess what? I couldn't do anything for them. But Jesus would take this and everybody would be, uh, would be satiated. They would have their thirst quenched. He multiplied food. Not by growing it, not by going and buying it, by just ripping it apart and separating it. He walked on water. He defied the natural laws that exist, like gravity, Right? He healed a blind man on the Sabbath, which uh, this was a double whammy. First of all, somebody could now see, but he was proving that he was Lord over the Sabbath as well. And then lastly, he raised Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days. There's no question. I mean, everyone was like, Jesus, if we roll that stone away, it's going to stink really, really bad. I mean, I've, I've been uh, walking before and run across the carcass of a dead animal f- after a couple of days, and it's pretty, it's pretty ripe. And after four days, so would the human body. Nope, doesn't matter. Come out, Lazarus. So Jesus is proving to himself to do things and have the ability to do things that no, nobody can do. Even science today cannot do the things that Jesus did. Therefore, proving himself to be God. And John knows this, and this is why John has picked these seven miracles in proving that Jesus is God. Next, he goes on, he says, well, not only do, am I making this claim, but there are seven statements that Jesus made that he is God. And those are the seven I am's. Um, two and a half years ago when I was on sabbatical, uh, you guys preached through the seven I am statements of Jesus 
So I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I'm just going to refresh your memory. The seven I am statements of Jesus. Jesus stood up to a crowd and said, I am. And, and we don't have time to go into just even what the word I am signified for the Hebrews. I am uh, was saying, uh, that was the name for God. When Moses uh, saw uh, the burning bush, he, um, God responded by saying, I am. And when he said, sent them to the Israelites, he said, tell them I am sent you. Uh, so this was synonymous with God's name. But the first I am statement, John chapter 6, 35, Jesus stood up and declared, I am the bread of life. That statement basically is saying, I am your life's sustenance. I, I uh, sustain life. There's more to it, but I'm just... John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Pretty significant. John chapter 10, verse 7, therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the gate for the sheep. He continued in verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's saying a lot of things here. The gate, he's the access to heaven. He's the access to the Father. Uh, he is the shepherd who will give his life for the life of the sheep. Um, again, uh, we can't spend all day talking about these things. Jesus said to her in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a really hard statement for non-believers or people who believe in other religions because Jesus is saying that uh, there is no other way to get to heaven except through me. Which is, um, you know, uh, some people take offense to that. And then John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Each one of these carries huge theological uh, thoughts and processes and meanings behind them all. The point is this, that Jesus is standing up and he's saying, I am God. I am everything the Old Testament uh, made reference to in the Messiah. Uh, I am the source of your life. Uh, that's a bold statement that only God can make. Right? And so here we have Jesus making God's statements that he, he is God. And then you have miracles backing up that Jesus is God. I mean, only God could change the chemical, uh, you know, um, I almost said balance. I forgot the word already. Composition. Thank you, Chris. The chemical composition is something only God can defy natural uh, laws and orders. Only God can heal somebody from a distance, right? Only God can multiply food from nothing, right? He's proving himself to be God. So John stands up and he proves that Jesus is God. That's, that's what John is doing in the first uh, uh, 12, 13 chapters of John. He's just saying, hey, Jesus is God. And this is why I'm writing this to you. 
He's, he is, yes, he's the Messiah, but he's more than that. He's God. Yes, he's the coming king, but he's more than that. He's God. Yes, he's a great teacher, but he's more than that. He's God. Which is huge. But there's also another nuance, a, a focus about Jesus within this. He focuses in, he hones in on one characteristic of God, and that's this. In John chapter 3, 16 and 17, familiar verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. That's this, that Jesus came, uh, God came motivated by love, and that God loves. And there's seven, again, seven examples of Jesus loving and caring for his disciples. And that's why the whole, really the end of John, uh, the last half of, of John, is just about God's care for his disciples, God's care for his people. Let me show you those. We're going to go through them quickly, uh, just like we did before. In chapter 13, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples um, at at the Last Supper, which would be uh, Thursday of this week if you're um, celebrating. So this Thursday, uh, realize, hey, this would be historically the night that Jesus ate the Last Supper with his disciples and washed their feet. The second thing he does, he comforts them in chapter 14. He tells them, hey, this is what's going to happen to me. Uh, This is what's what's going on. But then he brings them comfort. And he talks about, hey, I'll come back for you. And all these kinds of things. So he he gives them a peek of what's going to happen in the next several days. And he says, but don't worry. And he brings them comfort. Third thing, he teaches them what it means to be a disciple. Now, I couldn't put all the scripture references here, but in um, what's unique in John, John has also three statements, you are my disciple if. And the three things, chapter 8, verse 31 through 32, if you hold to his teachings, you are really my disciple. Chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, if you love one another. Chapter 15, verse 8, if you bear much fruit. So it's these last two, this loving one another, this bearing much fruit, this teaching them, hey, uh, this is what's very important as it relates to being my disciple. He talks a little bit about the end times. He, he, he imparts to them, hey, these are the important things. Um, number four, he promises to send the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to abandon you. When I leave and ascend to the Father, I'm going to send you another helper. Because he cares, I'm not just going to leave you alone. And he promises to send the Holy Spirit in chapter 16. In chapter 17, I mean, Jesus prays for his disciples. How, how interesting that moment must have been as a disciple. That here is Jesus who's just announced that he's going to be arrested, he's going to be tortured, he's going to be killed, he's going to be buried in the grave. And then he's comforting you and praying for you. That's a demonstration of love. Uh, number six, the obvious one for all of us, he dies for them. Chapter 19. He lays down his life. He dies 
for, for, uh, for them so that they can have access to heaven. And then chapter 7. Uh, this was new for me as I read through this. Um, we're going to look at, uh, not chapter 7, number 7, chapter 21 next week. But Jesus meets the disciples where they're at and gives them what they need to believe. You say, what do you mean? Well, uh, in chapter 20, when Jesus uh, raises from the dead, who's the first person he meets? Is Mary. And she's crying. They've stolen his body. What am I going to do? And she's distraught. And Jesus appears to her personally and says, Mary, it's me. I think that's pretty special. And then in, in later on, uh, he appears to the disciples in the upper room, but Thomas isn't there. And they tell Thomas, and Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it unless I can see it and put my finger in his wounds. What does Jesus do? He appears to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, here, here, touch. It's me. He met Thomas right where he's at. And then lastly, um, which we're going to look at next week, is Peter. Boastful, proud, makes big claims, fails, tries to go back to his old job, fails at that. I mean, yeah, we'll look at that next week. But um, just read through Peter and think about, like, he gave his life to follow Jesus, made really great claims, had been a professional fisherman, um, said, well, I failed Jesus, I guess I'll go back to fishing, and failed at fishing, caught nothing. Like, Okay, I'm just an all-around failure, right? Well, what does Jesus do? Jesus meets him at the beach as Peter's coming in with nothing. Failed the Lord, failed fishing. Oh, no, here's the Lord. And what does Jesus do? He loves on him. He reinstates him. And he says, no, no, no. Go feed my sheep. Just acts of love. He meets, he meets the people where they're at, he, he restores them. He reinstates them. And he says, no, no, no. I know your failures. I know your needs. I, I know, like, we, we pick on Thomas all the time. Like, oh, doubting Thomas. Don't be a doubting Thomas. Jesus is like, I don't care. D- doubt no more, Thomas. Here. I want you to believe. Mary, you think they stole the body. Nope, I'm right here. Believe. Peter, you think you're a failure. You believe you're a failure. Nope, I'm right here. Go. It's just an act of love on, on, on Jesus' part. He cares for his disciples. So, what is John doing? John is showing that Jesus is God who loves deeply and sacrificially. And it's important, and, it, and you can read the rest of John's writings, John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and it's saturated with love conversation, right? Especially 1 John. He just talks about God being love and loving one another and loving like God and all of these kinds of things. Which is important and a huge distinction because in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a God of wrath and judgment. Now Jesus, who proves to himself be God, comes with love. So is God a God of wrath and judgment or is a God a God of love? Yes. See, on this Palm Sunday, 
Um, on this Palm Sunday, uh, more than 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and they rightfully identified him as the coming Messiah, coming king. Right? They recognized his power. Uh, they recognized he was a, a biblical fulfillment of things. Um, they recognized all this, but they expected that he would come and he would break them uh, free from the bonds of Roman oppression, that he would restore and he would make Israel like the times of David and Solomon where they were a world power, where everybody in the world looked up to them, and that this empire, this dynasty, would be a dynasty that would last forever. That's how they interpreted the Old Testament. The thing is this, that Jesus didn't come to conquer and rule a city or a country. He came to conquer sin and win our hearts. And so on this Palm Sunday, Jesus came to conquer sin and win our hearts. His strategy? To love deeply and sacrificially. And when we look through the book of John, that's all we see. We see Jesus proving to be God, and we see Jesus caring for his, his disciples and the people around him with just, with just love and sacrifice. I mean, that's what Jesus is known most for, right? That he gave his life willingly so that, so that our salvation could be secured. So how does this, how does this affect us? Well, I want to ask you this question today. What What if Jesus is God? If Jesus is God, what does that mean to you? What does that mean for us? He's more than a good moral teacher. He's more than a prophet. He's more than an apostle. He's more than uh, a coming king. He's more than a a sub-demigod. He is God. What does that mean? How, does that, how do things shake down? If we, if we start our, our faith, if we start our theology of Jesus is God, how does that change things? It, it radically changes things. Radically changes things. He's not just some option out there. I think he had the best way to live our lives, so I'm going to follow him. If Jesus is God, then everything he said is true. If Jesus is God, everything he said is true. And he is capable of doing everything he promised. He has the means. He has the ability. What else? When I open this word and I read, if Jesus is God, his words carry more weight than any other words written in this book. Now, all scripture is inspired, right? All scripture is useful for teaching, reaching, rebuking, training, those kinds of things. But when I read through scripture and Jesus said it, Jesus' words carry more weight than Paul's. Jesus' words carry more weight than Moses's. Jesus' words carry more weight. 
And you say, well, why does this make a difference, Pastor Steve? Shouldn't it all carry weight equally? I bring it up because of this. Sometimes we, we don't understand things about Scripture sometimes. And if there's a disagreement with the way, with maybe, hey, Jesus said and did this, but so-and-so said this, and it doesn't seem like those match. Jesus's are the words that reign true. Either one of two things, either uh, that person was wrong, which is scripture, so we don't go there, but the reality is my interpretation and my understanding isn't accurate if I think there's a disagreement between the two. So in that midst of not understanding, we follow Jesus' words and Jesus' example. I don't know what that was, but I'm following Jesus until God reveals to me where my mess-up is. That's what I mean by they carries more weight. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to them, and the Old Testament says, man, knock them out cold. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, baby. I go, well, you know, that's a conflict. But Jesus said this, so I'm following Jesus. That's what, that's what I mean. What else? If Jesus is God, he is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of you giving your life to him. He's worthy of you showing up and, and giving him praise. He's worthy of you uh, making sacrifices for his kingdom. He's worthy of your obedience. He's worthy of all of these things. He's God. He created you. He created everything around you. He sustains you. He stain, sustains everything around you. And if he is God, his life and teaching should be uh, the example you follow. Even when we don't understand it. I mean, Jesus being God changes everything. If Jesus is God, then we know for certainty and we can celebrate today with the fact that if I have given my, my life, if I have received the gift of salvation, that I know how this ends. That despite my momentary trials, troubles, tribulations, and pains, I know where all this ends up. Because Jesus said so. And because Jesus said so, I can carry that with confidence because Jesus is God. He wasn't guessing. Right? So John's gospel is powerful. John's gospel proves to the unbeliever that Jesus is God. But John's gospel also encourages the current believer to stay true, to stay strong, that he cares for you, that he knows you, that you can celebrate with him, that you can live your life after him and you will never be put to shame. You might be put to shame here, but on that day that you stand before God, he's going to say, hey, well done, well done. And you can do this with confidence because Jesus is God. Amen and hallelujah. Church, I encourage you this to, to, um, to reflect on this, uh, this point. I've grown up in my, in my entire life in the church and uh, it becomes... Just something here, like Jesus is the Son of God. But the reality uh, 
to be brought fresh and anew, that all these names that we have for Jesus, that Jesus is God. He's part of the Trinity. And so when we hear his teachings and we look at his life, uh, he is uh, uh, the fullness. He's the visible representation of God. That God actually was far away and came close. That just like the people after he rose from the dead who had questions in their belief, that Jesus came to them where they're at and helped them through that. Whether that be Mary, whether that be Doubting Thomas, whether that be Peter. And that when, when, when Jesus says that you've been forgiven, your sins are forgiven, that you've been forgiven. That you can, the things that he has said, you can walk in with confidence. Not because uh, you pulled yourself up by the bootstraps, or not because society is affirming you, but because Jesus Christ said something about you and over you, and he restores you. And you can walk in that confidence knowing that even though I don't see him right now, that even though he's a bit invisible to me, I can sense his presence and I can stand on his words because he is God. And and when he walked this earth 2,000 years ago, he said these things, he did these things to prove it so that I can have confidence in how I live my life. And so, church, John writes this so that you can have confidence in living your life for Jesus Christ. Knowing that it's not a, well, I hope this works out for me. I hope I'm following the right religion. He comes to you with confidence today. He comes to meet you right where you're at. Knows the the questions, knows the doubts, knows where your theology is off, knows all of these things about you and me. And guess what? Loves you anyway. Comes to you anyway. Calls you his own anyway. Loves you anyway. And this is the the awesome character and nature of God that John draws out about Jesus Christ for you and me. Now, where does he want us to go today? My charge to you today is this. That personally you receive the love that God has for you through Jesus Christ. And when we say receive, it means think about it, believe it, act on it. And so, some of you, maybe, you know, you're thinking about it, but you're not sure you believe it. Or some of you think about it and believe it, but you don't, haven't really acted on it. And some of that acting can be just self-care, right? Like, I need to take care of myself because Jesus loves me. He's everything, I'm everything he said about me, and you know what? I'm going to live my life accordingly. So, it's, sometimes it's self-care. And the second piece is this, is love other people deeply and sacrificially, just like Jesus loves you.
And sometimes that means accepting people where they're at and loving them. Right? Sometimes it just means being, returning kindness for meanness. Sometimes it means just sitting by somebody in their grief. Right? It means all these things. But love deeply and sacrificially like Jesus. Act on it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you that you came to this earth and that you demonstrated to the world that you are God. And that thought is just profound. Um, if we would meditate on that thought and apply that thought to our lives, it would radically change how we think and what we believe and eventually how we act. So Lord, I pray that the words of John and the proofs that John gives us would just sit within our spirits and remind us that Jesus was more than a, a good teacher. He was more than a savior of our sin. He was more than a prophet. He was more than a Messiah. He was all of those things, and he's God himself, along with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Help us that this would resonate within us, uh, Lord. Help that this would solidify in our heart and in our soul that we may operate from that truth that John presented to us. And may the outcome of that be like Christ, that we would love deeply, that we would love sacrificially. Lord, we thank you for this upcoming week and what was called the Holy Week or Passion Week. I pray, Lord, that during this week the, the, the realities and the truths of what you came to do would be realized in our lives and it would help us to grow in our spirituality, in our relationship with you and our relationship with others. Lord, we praise you and we bless you on this Palm Sunday. In your precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you, church. Really good to see you this morning. I uh, look forward to seeing you uh, next Sunday on Resurrection Sunday. Uh, God bless.